to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night, said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, well, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, but, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, and yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But whoever believes in him may have eternal life, for God so loved the world that God gave God's only Son so that everyone who believes may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I don't... I don't know if you are past this milestone or if you remember much about it, if you are. But graduating from high school is a very stressful time. When you're going through it. And no, I don't mean worrying about whether you can get a date to prom or whether your cap or gown is going to show up in time in the right size. or. Even if you're going to squeak through third period physics with at least a D minus. I mean, because yes, all of those things are stressful. No, and I, I mean the stress that comes from the gradual realization that soon you'll be moving on to another phase in your life where whether you're ready or not, you're an adult, if only legally. So as graduation approached, I, I like I suspect most of my friends, 
pretty ambivalent. Of course, I was really excited about the next stage of life, college, freedom, independence, but I also had a lot of anxiety, knowing I was on the verge of facing life without the training wheels. You know? There's a song um, that Dominic and I like, and that, as, at least as a parent, has recently made me ugly cry on more than one occasion. It's by some young brothers who go by the band name AJR, and the song is titled, Don't Throw Out My Legos. And here's how it begins. My new address is hard to remember, so I wrote it down on the back of my hand, because I leave the nest this coming December to make it as a grown man. I'm about to lose my only defenders, so I'm packing up whatever I can. I've been waiting for today, but all I can think to say is, oh no, don't throw out my Legos. Well, what if I can't let go? What if I come back home? Can we keep my Legos at home? Because I want to move out. I don't want to move on. Now, I could have written that song. Well, or at least the clumsier version of it, <clears throat> the summer after I graduated from high school. I, too, wanted to move out, but I didn't have any enthusiasm for moving on from a life and friends and family that I'd always counted on to hold me up, lest I get sucked under the great tidal wave that seemed on the verge of swallowing me up. I found the prospect of life as a grown-up completely overwhelming. So you want to know what I did? I started reading. Actually, I started reading J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, which proved an excellent way to escape the gloom of an uncertain future for hours, especially the storm and stress of being responsible for myself. Now, the Lord of the Rings helped to create a genre that remains exceedingly popular today. That genre, of course, is fantasy. Because, of course, what with all the hobbits and orcs and wizards, it was definitely fantastical. I mean, I like that part of it, no question, and I still do. But what really spoke to me as I lay reading on our living room couch, curled up with dread in a fetal position, was the description of the Shire. This tiny village slash region that the hobbits call home. Tolkien paints the Shire in, in bucolic terms, right? It, it was pastoral, setting with rolling green hills, gentle forests, idyllic fields. And the inhabitants were all friendly, and they, they were rural folk who lived, worked, and played together peacefully, unthreatened by the rest of an increasingly shadowy and ominous world. Now, Tolkien <clears throat> based the setting for the Shire on the rural villages of his childhood, Worcestershire and Oxfordshire. And looking back, I think a big part of what made the Shire so inviting in my anxious, newly minted adult mind was that the whole countryside was protected from the encroaching malevolence of the terrifying realm of Mordor, a kingdom ruled by the wicked wizard Sauron. 
Now Sauron, who seems invincible to everyone already, <clears throat> has begun to expand his control in an attempt to rule the whole world. And to do this, he's been breeding evil minions to do his bidding. These creatures are called orcs, and they're said to be hideous goblins who are a twisted parody of the good in the world. They're described as ugly and filthy with a taste for human flesh. Now, largely unbeknownst to the hobbits of the Shire, they're, they're kept safe and sheltered by the rangers of the north from the gathering storm of Sauron's grim strength. In a world filled with menace and foreboding, the Shire lives blessedly ignorant, protected from the creeping presence of Sauron's foul desires. Now, perhaps you'll better understand the Lord of the Rings subtext if you know that Tolkien wrote the three... Uh, of these books, the trilogy, in England over the years 1937 to 1949. In his own dark and threatening world, England, a land mainly kept safe from invasion by uh, the invasion of evil by another kind of benevolent guardian, which is the waters that surround it. England is a land of innocence under the threat from the imperialist forces of a Nazi Mordor. Behind this creeping evil is another wicked wizard who seems invincible, Adolf Hitler, who's trying to breed his own twisted versions of human minions while conquering the world. But as a recent high school graduate, I didn't know any of that. I only knew that I was living in what felt like an ominous and threatening world myself, and that the Shire gave me a sense of comfort, a, a place to dream of when the bad stuff came to conquer. I felt like I was losing the protective comfort of my own childhood Shire for sure, so escaping to the fictional one seemed to me like the next best thing. Indeed, with the tens of thousands of hours I've spent reading in my life, reading The Lord of the Rings on the couch in the living room at the house I grew up in still feels, even after all of these years, like one of the, one of the two most significant reading experiences I've had. I have more profound memories of reading those three books in my 18th year than almost any books I've read since. I wanted so badly to escape the grim world I was afraid was coming. And the magical land of Tolkien's Middle, Middle Earth gave me a place to flee when everything else seemed to be spiraling into chaos. You ever done that? Needed someplace safe to escape in your own mind? Longed for a world apart from the reality bearing down on you? I mean, it could be the Shire, or Narnia, or Hogwarts. It could be video games, or Netflix, sports. It could be alcohol, or narcotics. I mean, some people escape their difficult worlds by spending their whole lives at their jobs. And some people use sex. Some people use Facebook or TikTok. Any place that promises to deliver you from the dread and anguish of a hostile world that seems ready to swallow you up. But 
needing to feel protected and secure from the threatening, uncertain chaos means that sometimes we take refuge in the worlds that caused the problems in the first place. That's the paradox we often inhabit. The worlds we turn to, alleviate, turn to to alleviate our pain and anxiety are often the very source of the chaos that we're running from. I mean, how often do we see that happen? People look to ease their suffering, but not wanting to give up the familiarity of the world that produced it in the first place. And the thing about it is, we're so good at lying to ourselves that most of us can talk ourselves into seeking shelter sometimes in the worst possible places. I've, I've told some of you the story before, but when I was young, I, I used to smoke cigarettes. And I'd, I, I'd tried on several occasions to quit, which eventually gave me some insight into myself. And that is, I was good at quitting. I was just lousy at staying quit. So inevitably, I'd find some excuse to start smoking again. Man, you're going through a stressful time. Nobody can blame you for having a cigarette. I mean, you can quit again later. It's always tomorrow. See, addicted me is just a way better arguer finding and exploiting the, 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 the smallest openings. Do you know what that feels like? One time I'd quit smoking, <clears throat> it was in October. So I'd also at the same time acquired that first cold of the year when the weather changes. Now for some reason it was lodged deep in my chest. I was hacking like, like I was trying to expel chunks of my lung with each wretched bark. And I was miserable. And then the thought struck me. You know, <clears throat> I, I never coughed this badly when I smoked. <laughs> you know what I did? I actually went out and bought a pack of cigarettes to ease my cough. You see what I mean? I mean, I can talk myself into going right back to the source of my problems as a stupid and misguided attempt to solve those same problems. This is the dilemma that confronts Jesus in our text this morning. See, he's approached under cover of darkness by a Pharisee named Nicodemus. But, but, but before we get there, we, we need to set this story in its proper context. As John chapter 2 closes, that is the chapter just prior to our chapter for this morning, Jesus is at the temple for the Passover festival. Now, while he's there, he decides to start a revolution by turning over the money changers' tables. As the story of Jesus' cleansing of the temple unfolds, his disciples watch him go berserk on the locals. Which passion reminds them, John tells us, of the psalm that says, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, interestingly, this phrase, 
was also an important slogan for a radical group of Jewish subversives who took their name from it, the Zealots. They were known as Zealots because of the zeal for God's house that consumed them. Now, the Zealots, though not an official political party at this time, were Jewish freedom fighters who wanted Rome and its greedy, blasphemous ways out of Palestine so that Israel might once again rule itself. Now, beyond their bitterness and disgust of, uh, over overwhelming taxation, one of the primary beefs that the Zealots had with Rome was the use of Roman coinage. I think we mentioned it last week. But they, these coins often had images of Caesar engraved on the front, which is a breach of the second commandment about not worshiping graven images. And they considered anyone who used Roman currency a traitor to God and to Israel, a kind of weaselly collaborator who was definitely part of the problem and not part of the solution. So when Jesus starts kicking around the money changers, you know, the, the ones who exchange Roman currency in a manner that causes onlookers to think of the famous zealot slogan, well, he establishes his revolutionary bona fides to anybody sympathetic to the zealot's goal of kicking out the Romans. I mean, he's getting a reputation for himself. People are making connections. They see how he acts. Now, interestingly, John closes the story of Jesus cleansing the temple and closes chapter 2 by saying that while Jesus was in Jerusalem, many people began to believe that he might just be the one to give Rome and its lackeys the boot, finally. But, John adds, Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Now, next thing you know, Nicodemus skulks onto the scene in the opening of chapter 3. He's kind of constantly looking back over his shoulder just to make sure that nobody's following him. And the first thing he says is, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. See, now maybe here we get a glimpse of why Jesus didn't trust the new converts in Jerusalem because as John reminds us, he knew all people. And then here comes Nicodemus who looks for all the world like another potential convert. Only Jesus knows that these new Jerusalem groupies are too often convinced that Jesus is the new Palestinian Che Guevara, a revolutionary who will lead them in a war to overthrow Roman oppression. So the fact that Nicodemus approaches Jesus by night saying that the folks he represents know Jesus is a teacher who's come from God after Jesus has just said he doesn't trust people like Nicodemus because he knows all people that's a big tip off that we have a master storyteller here at work somebody who's making connections subtly Nicodemus, representing the nameless others, says, we know all about you. 
proof to Jesus that they probably don't actually have the faintest idea about him. Everyone just assumes that Jesus will be the Messiah who delivers them from the hand of the Romans. I mean, the Romans do, right? They're, they're, they're going to kill him for it. The New Jerusalem converts do. Heck, even his disciples are sure who Jesus is and what he's about to do in launching a new revolution. They're convinced that Jesus will help get rid of the threatening and ominous Roman world that is oppressed, has the oppressed Jews ducking for cover. Now, according to Ronald Allen, whereas Matthew subscribes to an apocalyptic Judaism, a, a Judaism uh, that, that is looking toward the end times, John and his gospel leans toward a, a kind of fusion of Judaism with themes from Greek philosophy uh, that, that's been influenced by Platonism. Uh, the kind of philosophy found in somebody like Philo of Alexandria, who's an approximate contemporary of Jesus. And from this perspective, John sees the world as a two-story universe. The world is the lower story, a sphere of hate, darkness, falsehood, bondage, scarcity. The world, for John, is thus not just creation, teeming with humankind and animals and other natural life, but it is a sphere of existence that lives in pain with only a partial knowledge of God. Now, the upper story is heaven, which is centered around God. It is a sphere of life and light, truth, freedom, abundance. God reveals the possibility of heaven through Jesus. And so eternal life is an essential quality of heaven. But arriving at night and talking about how the folks he represents already know who Jesus is and about his zeal, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Nicodemus demonstrates that he's got his sights still set on a version of the lower world, the shadow world. Even though that shadow world and the way it's structured operates on oppression and fear and violence, it is the world where the strongest and the wealthiest are still in control. Sure, I mean, throwing out the Romans is just what everybody wants, sometimes even the Romans themselves. Still, the very act they find necessary to throw out the Romans, totally and violently, shows that Nicodemus only wants to trade one form of shadow world for another. Instead, Jesus tells Nicodemus that if he truly wants God's new kingdom established, then he must be born from above, which is to say Nicodemus must embrace the values of that upper world, that sphere of the light and life, truth, freedom, and abundance. Longing to escape a threatening and ominous Roman world of scarcity only to get a new, more familiar Jewish one is merely clinging to the lower world, which is, as we've noted, a sphere of hate and darkness, falsehood, bondage, and scarcity. Even though you're seeking life, liberation, and abundance, 
If you're opting for a modified version of the shadow world, that means that you're only exchanging one set of problems for another. Maybe a different, more Jewish set of problems, but still a suburb of the lower world. Because at the end of the day, you, you'll have a grim twilight world where oppression, exploitation, and exclusion still exist. Only now the oppressors will have names and backgrounds that look more like you. But because God loves the world, even with all of its fear and distrust, because God loves the world, God sent Jesus not to condemn the world, to throw it on the scrap heap. Instead, according to the translation in your pew Bible, God sent Jesus to save the world. Now, the word for salvation is probably better translated here, healing. In other words, Jesus comes to transform the lower world from above and to usher in a new realm, a new reign, a new world that looks like heaven right here on earth. A new world where everybody is welcome and nobody gets left out. A world where transgender kids aren't the focus of hateful politicians looking to score political points. Where people receive the food, housing, and healthcare that they need. Not the leftovers. Where our neighbors aren't marginalized because of the color of their skin or the people they love. Where the poor and the dispossessed are the people we think of first and not as afterthoughts, or worse, as targets of those in power. The question demanded of us by this story, by the very times in which we live, is which world are we seeking? Are we looking to escape the horror of the current world by running to a world that winds up producing many of the very same problems that we already have? Or do we hold out for a world from above. Now it may be from above, but it is still a world that is present right here on earth, right now, present to us just as it is in heaven. Which world? Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.